Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name's Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode, which is series two, episode six, I'm talking to Carl Honoré. Carl is probably best known for In Praise of Slow, a multi-international best-selling book. Uh, and also one of the one of the names on TED, actually, if you're on TED.com and you're surfing around, you've probably seen uh, at least a link to uh, Carl's uh, very uh, well-shared talk on TED as well. Uh, and Carl's third book, uh, which came out in 2013, is The Slow Fix, Solve Problems, Work Smarter and Live Better in a Fast World. Uh, Carl very kindly sent me that book uh, before we chatted. So that was the one that I'd most recently read. And we talk about a few of the things uh, from that book. Uh, and it's fair to say we would hear it off. It's um, we we met at like a speakers event in London, and someone introduced the two of us. I think expecting us to have a kind of you know uh, in front of everyone ding dong Barney debate thing, uh, given that you know uh, Carl's Carl's work you know and the energy of slow and about being in the moment feels I think superficially. Uh, it feels like the opposite of Productivity Ninja, which is all efficiency and and get things done. And, you know, it has that kind of energy to it. But, you know, actually, I think, I think you know, uh, underneath uh, both of our philosophies, uh, there's actually just so much in common. Uh, in particular, you know, uh, doing it as this conversation uh, will focus on, doing things more slowly is often more efficient than trying to do them fast. Um, and the other thing is, I think it's a, a huge... Uh, not only a, a component of productivity to uh, try and spend more time being in the moment and, you know, really kind of uh, developing an appreciation with the things that you're doing. Um, you know, it's a component of doing productivity better. And it's also the outcome that productivity enables you to get towards, right? Like it's, you know, you do your work really well or you're successful at your thing so that you have more time for family and more time to uh, to enjoy the other things that life has to offer. So uh, we really uh, hit it off when we got together at this um uh, speakers event and it just felt like a really natural thing you know my next question was like can I come and interview you for Beyond Busy uh, so here we are at Carl's house uh, now this is always the thing is when you're not when I don't because I don't live in London anymore like I remember how London has these kind of weird boundaryless boundaries uh, but like I got out of Clapham Junction and it was fully you know like the word in my head was Clapham and of course, I started the conversation with Carl. And he's like, no, we're in Battersea. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, obviously you get out of Clapham Junction. You're not in Clapham. Um, so, yeah. So we started talking about um, the area that Carl lives and in particular, the area of Northcote Road, which as I was walking down the road, I realized uh, was really the embodiment of a lot of the stuff that Carl talks about. You know, it was lots of people uh, sitting outside on a lovely autumn. Uh, this is autumn 2016. Lovely kind of, uh, you know, sort of autumn evening. Uh, families with their kids have just been at school uh, couples, you know, just having a really nice meal, uh, really feeling like it was people uh, living that lifestyle of slow in and amongst this kind of chaotic, uh, fast paced city that London is. And it really kind of felt like the area suited Carl. So we started just talking about what attracted Carl to, to living in Battersea and in particular Northcote Road uh, and whether that was something that preceded his love of slow or whether that was something that came along with the territory. Cool. So I'm here with Carl Honoré. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Looking forward to it. Good uh, to have you here. And uh, we're in uh, we're in Battersea. You just told me. Mm-hmm. I, I thought we were in Clapham because I just got off at Clapham Junction. <laughs> but I just walked along uh, Northcote Road. Um, it's early September here and very muggy today, right? Mm, just uh, yeah, very hot and sweaty. But lots of uh, lots of people out having their meals uh, with their kids after their first days at school, presumably. Uh, just on the high street there, so lovely part of the world uh, yeah. to be here in, in South London. How long have you been here? How long have you been in Battersea? Lived here getting on for 20 years. Oh, really? So this okay. is properly my hood. Right. <laughs> I've cool. seen some extraordinary changes, but Northcote Road still has that lovely yeah. slow vibe to it where people do linger, take time, have a coffee and so yeah. on. So, so you presumably moved here before you discovered your need for slow and got into... I was very much a card-carrying speedaholic when I moved in here. Right, Absolutely. Okay. But I, did that skidding North Road slow thing appeal to you even then? Like, was that on your radar? You know, I, I was always interested in eating well, but back then I even took a very fast approach to food. So I probably did drive by <laughs> eating and <laughs> shopping on Northcote Road. Right. Uh, it, it, I, you know, it could be that the... the, the Culinary joys in Northcote Row were part of my awakening. Just having that on the doorstep, you know, f- uh, a baker who talks about, you know, 
how they make their loaves of bread and a food market where you know the food longer, a butcher who knows your children's names, all that kind of yeah. very yeah. sort of slow living stuff was was appealing to me, even though I was in roadrunner mode. <laughs> yeah, and we're talking about slow because you're uh, pretty best known for in praise of slow slash in praise of slowness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very meticulous of you. Yeah. So is that um, like why do the Americans not like the title slow? Why did it have to be slowness? In well, the they said that it was grammatically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> there were at the time all kinds of transatlantic conference calls with different editors in Canada and United States and Britain. And the Americans just dug in their heels and said, no, it's got to be slowness. And everywhere else in the Anglosphere, including my native Canada, went with in praise of slow. Right. But in the US, it's in praise of slowness. And and so I suppose if they uh, just looked at it, um, like in that technical sense, it would be incorrect. But you're talking more as slow as a noun in terms of that movement of slow and slow as a concept. Yeah, that's really what I was trying to do with that book was to lay down a marker and to take the word slow and elevate it to something bigger than it had been in the language, to turn it into a shorthand for a philosophy of life or a way of being. So it made sense to me. It felt right in the title to have that pithy, punchy, slightly grammatically odd (laughs) twang to it because it felt like it was making a a statement. I quite like grammatically odd, I have to say, (laughs) because sometimes the words, because they jar a little bit, if they are grammatically odd, then it makes you stand up and and sort of see that for what it is as well. Yeah, I wanted it to be arresting intellectually, but also visually, because I think when you see the word slow, or I thought when you saw the word slow on a front cover of a book, that would be it would be jarring. It would be odd yeah. for people to see it because everywhere you look, the word fast is being hurled at us yeah. as the gold standard. So I wanted to have the word slow out there, you know, short and sharp, uh, a four letter word, if yeah. you like. <laughs> so um, tell me what first got you interested in just the concept of slow and recognizing your own need for slow. Like, where did that come from? Well, it came from a very personal place. I was at the time a journalist, a foreign correspondent, which is by its very nature a fast game. I was a fast person anyway, and I was just so high octane. Everything in my life, every moment had become a race against the clock. And I could feel in my bones that something was wrong, but I just, I think like a lot of us when we get into that state, I just put my head down and went faster and got busier. And I think when you get stuck in that dash to the finish line mode, you you often need a shock to the system or a wake-up call to make you realize that you've, you've lost your compass. And I think a lot of people, the wake up call comes in the form of an illness. I didn't have that. Thankfully, my wake up call came when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And I used to go back, you know, I go back now and I think I went into his room in those days and I would just sit on the bed and I'd be speed reading Snow White, skipping lines, (laughs) paragraphs, entire pages. I became an expert in what I called the multiple page turn technique, which I'm sure any parent (laughs) wincing in recognition. But of course, my son, like every four year old three-year-old knew the stories back to front so he'd catch me out he'd, you know, daddy why are there only three dwarves in the story tonight you know what happened to grumpy and this really lamentable state of affairs went on for some time until i caught myself genuinely flirting with buying a book that i'd heard about i think i read about it in the financial times a book called the one minute bedtime story so snow white and all those great tales that exists it does <laughs> and at the time it was selling like hotcakes and i remember thinking you know snow white in 60 seconds bring it on, right? I need that yeah, book now, yeah. Amazon drone delivery. <laughs> but but thankfully I had a very different second reaction and it was a proper light bulb over the head moment. And I thought, does it really come to this? You know, am I really in such a hurry? I'm prepared to mm. fall off my little boy with a sound bite at the end of the day instead of a story. And that was when I just, I just stopped. And it was one of those moments of searing epiphany when you see yourself in sharp relief from the side. And what I saw there was just uh, it was ugly, it was unedifying, and I just lost my head. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really the starting point for me to just stop, really push pause and stop and start thinking about not only my own addiction to speed, but as a journalist to understand how I fit into yeah. the bigger picture. So at that moment, were you still a foreign correspondent? I was very much happened? so, yeah. So I was what? in a Rome airport actually at the time, oh, right. coming okay. back from an assignment when wow. I stumbled across this epiphany. And um, what was the process from there to then obviously releasing the book and starting to be the ambassador for well, for slow? And in slow. some ways, it was a slow process. You might not be surprised to hear. Okay. I, I couldn't just slough off my journalistic career and, and, and go down a new path. So I kind of smuggled it in, if you like. I talked to my editor at the time. I was working for a Canadian national paper called The National Post. And I said, I'd love to write a series of articles about this slow, this idea of slowing down. I can see things happening out there in the ether. I'd like to stitch it together into a bigger narrative. So I wrote a five-day series for The National Post. And that just landed like a bomb. It 
lots of people were talking about it. I had publishers coming to me immediately saying you should turn it into a book. And then from there, I began, well, I, the first publisher actually who came to me made an offer and I went to their website and I, because I think it's useful to see the back catalog of the publishers yeah. you're getting into bed with. And pretty much all the books in their, their library were uh, professional wrestling you know, <laughs> or diet aids. And I thought, I'm not sure if this is quite the stable that I want to be laying my head in. So I kind of pulled back a little bit and set off to find an agent. And I think this is quite telling, actually. I, I, my wife is a writer as well, and so her agent gave me three, three or four different agents to try in London, all a very different spectrum, different types, different okay. interests. Went to see them all, pitched the idea, showed them the articles. They all told me no. All four mm. of them said, there is no way, there is no market for a book about slowing down. This will not fly. And so I began to think I was off going off on one and was toying with the idea of shelving it. And then I found myself at a, at a dinner sitting beside somebody who was a literary scout. And I was talking about this knockback from the, the, the various agents. And she said, oh, you should try Patrick. And Patrick, uh, Patrick Walsh, who's my agent, I emailed him the next morning. And within 45 minutes, he said, we need to meet in my club in Soho, <laughs> yeah. uh, which has a kind of nice romantic ring to it. And I was there within an hour. And we just sat there for two hours, talked it through. And he said, we can totally make this work. Put together a proposal and it went out. And immediately it just, it's now in 35 languages or something. I mean, it yeah. just even now, you know, 10, whatever, 12 years later, it's just coming out in Russian and Arabic. Just the other day, I read the whole book as an audio book, mm. spent two days in a studio. Uh, you know, it just keeps coming out in new editions. It's sort of just, I think it was the right message delivered in the right style at the right moment. Yeah. And so that moment, 10 or 12 years ago, feels like it's still, we're still in that moment now, <laughs> maybe even more so. I mean, do you, do you see more of a uh, more of an epidemic around that whole sort of fast instant results kind of culture now? Or, like, I mean, has it moved on a lot it's in the a, last It's a curate's egg or a mixed bag yeah, is what I would you... say. In some ways, things have sped up. There's no mm. question. When I signed off on Empraise of Slow all those years ago, I mean, social media, for instance, was in its infancy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that has really ratcheted up. Yeah. speed, the, the expectations of everything happening at the speed of a mouse click, or even the way we expect our relationships to happen so quickly now, whether it's Tinder or having 943 friends on Facebook. I mean, what does that even mean for the notion of friendship, right? Yeah. That yeah. kind of speeding up, that placing of quantity before quality. So that all of that has accelerated. But I think what's happened since the book came out, to my delight and relief, is that the countercurrent yeah. for slow, for people saying, you know what, yes, the dominant keynote of our culture remains acceleration and a, a glorification of speed, but we have another current now, which has always been there. You go back to the transcendentalists. Uh, I mean, Nietzsche talked about things, talk moving too fast, the romantic movement, the hippies even, it's always been there. Yeah. But now with the slow culture quake, it's bigger and it's growing bigger. And it's, I would argue that the slow movement is growing fast. Mm. Do you still presumably have like, do you go into businesses or you talk to people sometimes who just they're so living quick that do you feel a bit like an alien sometimes? Does it feel like you're just, you know, uh, like, I mean, you said you had those four agents there and it nearly got to the stage where because they'd all rejected it, the book was never going to come mm. into being, right? So like, is that something that you experience a lot, that just that sense of feeling like you're a slightly alien species? In a little of, bit, yes. I mean, I, ex I certainly experienced that acutely at the beginning. I mm. felt at the very start that... I was a lone voice in the wilderness, and it was a bit like the man who fell to earth. You know, the man who fell to earth saying, slow down in a world that was drunk on speed. Mm. It was an odd place to be. But now that we've moved forward all these years, I feel like I've got less to do to make the case to people. People yeah. now come to me and say, yeah. you know, we know what you do, or we've heard about this thing. It makes complete sense to us in our business, in our organization, in our family, in our community. We want you to help us bring the lens of slow, bring that lens to what we're doing and help us do it better. That doesn't mean that there aren't still lots of people who are very resistant to the idea and who are, I mean, I, I still come across these people all the time who, who say, oh, I can't, you know, I'd love to slow down, but I can't, right? Mm. If I slow down, I'm toast. That's and the, that's the end like, of everything. But my, because I get this all the time with the productivity stuff, it's like, but my job's special and there's all these reasons why I can't, but, you know, probably everybody else could. There's a bit of that too, yeah. yeah. There's a kind of feeling of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unique somehow, yeah. when, when I don't think anyone really is. I mean, even people at the very top of the corporate food chain, you're the fastest, most 
cutthroat sectors of the global economy, they are starting to put on the brakes and look for ways to allow yeah. people to slow down and decompress and change gears, right? Because that's what slow is really all about, is is fast and slow. It's not yeah. about doing everything slowly, of course. Yeah, yeah. And we were tweeting the other week about, um, in fact, someone was tweeting, both of us, weren't they, and saying I was... I was stuck on a Southern Rail train at the time, and yes, I, remember I think that. you said to me, hashtag bad slow. Yeah. So there's like, you yeah. know, there's slow and then there's bad slow, which I totally get. Yeah. Uh, so I've just read uh, The Slow Fix, which is, um, I guess, a, a, would you call it a follow-up book to In Praise of Slow? Like, is that how you uh, describe it? Well, it, it's, my, it's really my third book, because my second book is about uh, education and children and parenting and so on. So I guess in a sense, it's a follow-up. It, it, it's more maybe... Th- kind of a how-to, how to take some of the ideas of slow and put them into practice yeah. in, in, well, not just the work, a lot of it's the workplace, but also your private life and, and stuff. So yeah, I suppose in a yeah. sense, it's a kind of follow-up. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, particularly in terms of what it, what it um, uh, brought to my attention a lot is just the whole notion of how do you, how do you get ingrained in cultures and businesses? And then, and then like, how do you seek to change that? Right. So like, I feel like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about there, it's, there's no one's really sat there going wouldn't it be great if we just went faster and faster and burnt each other out i mean no one's really Mm. sort of making that case but it just happens by accident that this culture develops that becomes this quick fix well in a sense i think what nobody's saying what that full sentence you just uttered there they they drop the second part yeah right the part about the burnout i think many people and i hear it all the time i'm sure you hear it in your work as well people say it's fat it's a fast world we've got to go faster you know it's speed 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 the need for speed you know, I, I hear that it's woven into our vernacular, yeah. right? The idea of you, you, the early bird catches the worm, all those, you know, you, you snooze, you lose, lunches for wimps. It's all yeah, there, burned true. into yeah, our yeah. language, right? Yeah. Uh, what we don't do is, I think, take the next step, which is to say that going fast all the time is folly, right? Yeah. And, and, and it burns us out physically, yeah. emotionally, intellectually. It makes us less productive, less creative. All the things that we think it's going to deliver it ends up backfiring on us. Yeah. That's what doesn't get said. We stop at the first clause of that sentence, which is say, yeah. we got to go faster. It's such a fast I, world. I guess I was thinking more like, it's like, you know, it feels like it's more, it's more chaos than conspiracy in a lot of those things. Those yeah. things do kind of develop on their own. But it feels like you have to be much more planned if you're going to rein back from that or question that 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 culture that, that's very pervasive and do something different. So like, is that something you found... A difficult message when you go into businesses, you know, to to talk to people about slow problem solving and you know and and slow fix solutions to things rather than quick fix. Is that is that a difficult message for people? Or? I think I think that it still is a difficult message. I think it's sometimes difficult to get in the door because they'll all it takes is one person who's hostile to the idea or just can't get his or her head around it and then yeah. you don't you don't get in front of the people who who may be yearning for it on right, the inside of the course, business yeah, yeah. but if you do get in the in the door and i do get in the door uh, i find that even the people who start out skeptical in the session by the end are saying you know what that that touched me and that made sense to me on an intellectual level and i can get it, it it's not something i can necessarily wave a wand and completely slowify my life tomorrow or change this whole company. But this makes sense. And and for me, that's already a triumph. If you've got somebody who came in thinking, oh, I don't, this, ugh, this is silly, right? This slow thing, I can't slow down. I, I need to go faster, right? Yeah. And they go away thinking, hmm, actually a bit of judicious good slow might allow me to be more productive, more creative and actually move more quickly. Yeah. So maybe just give, just give us a couple of examples of either within businesses or just within people's own lives. Like, what are those judicious uh, uses of good slow that can really make a difference? Well, there's one study that um, looks at how people make decisions in the workplace that are connected to problem solving. And they found that when confronted with a difficult, tangled problem in, at work, if you take uh, two minutes to, to, to ponder and think it over just, and to reflect on it, uh, I mean, just two minutes, not two days or hours or even, two, you know, uh, just two minutes that it can allow you to short circuit and get past some of those uh, natural biases that the brain has, you know, the confirmation mm. bias, the Einstein effect, all those things that push us towards quick fixes, old solutions we've already done, low hanging fruit and allow us to push through that stuff and come out the other side yeah. with something fresher, something newer and often something better. And that's not a huge investment of time, right? It's just, it's it's a little, yeah, it's a small tweak. Counterintuitively, I mean, two minutes feels like not very much time at all. Like it yeah. feels quite quick, but yeah, actually, 
you think about a lot of the decisions that people make, the number of seconds that people take when they're reading an email to then responding to yeah. it. Two minutes is it's an acre of time in that sense. In right? most modern workplaces, yeah. you walk in now, how often do you see somebody just sit there and think for two minutes? Yeah, I mean, even for one minute or 30 seconds. Yeah. I've just been, I'm just about to go do an event in Croatia and we're talking about doing a little interactive moment. And I was going to get the crowd to, I suggested I'll get the crowd to sit still just for two minutes and, you know, try and clear their minds and think about it. Yeah. And they wrote, the organizer wrote back to me and said, we love the idea, but we think two minutes is too long. <laughs> Let's go for one minute <laughs> in an event devoted to slowing down. Right? <laughs> so I think that underlines a little bit where we are now is that, yeah. um, you know, even the small changes we find hard to swallow because mm. they just seem too slow. Yeah. So, and, you know, given uh, your uh, leading role in this slow movement, that I have this the other way around. So I have this where every email I ever send to anybody or any interaction I have around work is like, well, you're the productivity ninja guy, right? So I have to sort of behave in a certain mm -hmm. way. And I feel like under this real <laughs> pressure that I've created this massive rod for my own back. Um, I kind of read this book thinking I'd actually much prefer your rod than mine. Like, <laughs> you know, to slow down the speed. We could do but a rod swap. You, but presumably you have the same thing, right? It's that people yes. expect you to, uh, to live and have that mindset of slow in like everything you do. So, so tell me about... Um, Maybe some of the ways that after having written the book and then been talking about it for a while, you know, maybe you've, maybe that's sort of like uh, accelerated for you. Maybe there's more things like that where you've uh, developed that slow mindset into more areas of life and stuff. So, well, certainly just backpedaling to what you first said, I, I definitely have a rod to beat my own back with <laughs> it. And, and I, even though I have, even though I have slowed down and reconnected with my inner tortoise, if you like, I, I'm still a naturally fast person. Mm. And so my inclination is sometimes to go too fast. So people are always on the lookout, right? They're always wanting to catch me going too fast. Uh, and often when I'm going fast and it makes sense to be fast, I'm going at what I think of as the right speed. Yeah. I still have people saying, hang on, that's a little bit too quick, isn't right, it, for Mr. Right. Slow? So that, that you know, and I've heard I've heard all those jokes, believe me, many times <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and, and So when you yeah. reply to an email, do you have to just like let it sit in the <laughs> outbox for an hour just to make sure it's not an instant response? Uh, there have been times <laughs> when I have held back, I've got to say, yeah, with certain people. But generally speaking with email, I'm pretty quick. And in fact, yeah. that's one of the things people often say about me is they say, you're so quick with email. Uh, and which makes me think, gosh, maybe I'm being too quick and I'm sending the wrong message. Right. But, but I'm quick really when I'm on, I get it done, but then mm. I switch off. And if, yeah. you, if you hit me at a, a window when I'm unplugged, then you're going to have to wait. Um, yeah. So it, it goes both ways. What have you learned for yourself about unplugging and about, about embracing slow? Like, you know, over the years, there must have been sort of, that must have been an iterative yes. snowballing process. Yeah, it was, especially with technology, because... I was definitely the round-the-clock, sleeping with a phone by the pillow type person. And I think one of the problems nowadays is that people, and I th probably count myself in this group, people are so impatient now that they even want to slow down quickly. <laughs> right? So they, they hear about this joyous, slow life thing that's going to help them work better, live better, make love better, do everything better. And they think, yes, I want that now, right? You know, I, I, I want the inner calm of the Dalai Lama by tomorrow morning. Yeah. But give it doesn't the, work that. The, it, give me the uh, pill that I can pay lots of money give, for. And be give me the fast pill to slow down. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. of course, it doesn't work that way. But I, you know, I found myself going overboard, and you know, I, I definitely at the beginning, you know, signed up for meditation class, and then I was pretty much running across the street to do yoga, and, um, <laughs> which is not really quite the spirit of the enterprise, or not the right spirit anyway. And and then with the technology, I tried really at the beginning to go cold turkey too quickly to brusquely I, I then pedaled back yeah. and came at it more gradually and so that, turkey on what on just switching just off whole days on, yeah emails and just the whole yeah just the whole thing and, and I found it I mean there are times when I will switch off for a long spans of time uh, but three minutes yeah, two <laughs> <laughs> um, but, no, what, but what, I, what, I was what trying is, to go like days without it yeah. oh for me yeah um well, if I'm if I'm in a working mode, I mean, I, I usually stay away from it pretty much most of the weekend. Yeah. Um, during the working day, I'll I, I kind of do that chunking thing of having times when I'm on and times when I'm off. It depends what kind of work I'm doing. If I'm doing something that can actually be 
uh, nourished by a little bit of gentle light distraction, then I'll leave it on and mm. dip in and out of what I'm doing. But if I'm doing deep reflective work like writing or something, then I'll block everything off for maybe two hours or three yeah. or sometimes four. I do a lot, what I do nowadays is I do a lot of walking just when I'm going places without my phone. Mm. Like, which is a very small but quite rebellious act nowadays. Yeah, just uh, partly because you think, well, you might want to take a photo or there might be an important text. But you know what? I've not missed a single important <laughs> message in all the time mm. I've done that. And okay, maybe I've occasionally missed out on posting something fetching on Instagram. But you know, that memory is engraved more fully in my personal memory yeah, than sure. it is on my social media, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that we experience the world differently when we aren't seeing it through a camera lens, we remember things better, all that stuff. I, I, mm. I've lived that. I know that to be true. So that's another thing I, I switch off, um, you know, when I walk. I think there's something particularly about the act of walking, which seems to me a perfect metaphor for this slow philosophy, because slow philosophy is about doing things at the right speed, the right tempo, right for you and so on in the moment. And walking you can't walk too fast, right? I mean, you know right away when you're walking too fast. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. It's not like being in a car where you've got a gas pedal or accelerator pedal. It's easy to go too quickly. You're up a hill, down a hill or just walking. And there's something also, I mean, it's that old Latin phrase of solvitor ambulandum, you know, the idea that problems solve themselves as you walk. Mm. I mean, a lot of the great thinkers have gone off and whether they were artists or writers or scientists and just that moment of decompression and walking, something about, yeah. it's like a fluid form of meditation almost and to have the phone vibrating in your pocket or even just present I think feels to me now feels slightly obnoxious I mean not that I don't go everywhere I of course I take my phone with me when I go places yeah. but I also ring fence off certain moments to go for walks without it and I find that such a delicious liberation yeah so I just I was in Vienna a couple of weeks ago um just for a couple of days and you know it's just a little uh, city break holiday break and I did that like I went for a walk and left the phone in the hotel and I think like two things happened one was I was you know I was in a really beautiful place mm. I was like oh I need to take those uh, pictures for Instagram and all that but I, I, I do genuinely think I walked slower because I didn't have the phone because with the phone it does feel like okay I'm, I'm switched on I'm connected I'm Mm-hmm. You know, and I do tend to walk quite fast in terms of just if I'm weaving through people in London and all that sort of thing, I, I like to have the space around me. So if someone's like right there in my face, you know, I'll try and overtake them and get around them or whatever. But yeah, like I, I do think there was a correlation between not having the phone and just going, well, that sort of means I'm in a downtime mode. It sort of mm-hmm. means I'm in a different It's like space. a cue almost. More, yeah, yeah. Like it, yeah, almost like a Pavlov's dog sort of thing. I, I felt like I was walking more slowly, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. I did something recently where we had a two-week holiday in Spain and Italy, in Spain and France uh, this summer. And for my email, I put up an automatic reply that went out saying, I'm away, having a slow holiday in the Dordogne and the Basque Country. Uh, if you really need an urgent, this is really genuinely urgent, then send this email, same email back to me with the word slow in capital right, in the front. Okay. And it was interesting, I had lots of emails, uh, but only one person in two weeks did slow. And actually they genuinely needed a swift response. Mm. I was able to you know, find it somewhere where I could talk to them, talked, dealt with, done. Um, the rest of it I came back and then I looked at all the emails and it was interesting because I remember thinking at the time that many of these emails felt urgent, right? Yeah. They, they oozed urgency. And if I hadn't put up that barrier somehow, that filter, I'd have been jumping on those things right away. But actually it turned out that of course, none of them was that urgent. And I got back to them and many of the things were sorted out three weeks after the original email. The world did not come to an end, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I do something similar when, uh, when I'm away, which is uh, on my out of office, it basically says, I'm unavailable, but you know, if you need a response, here are the four people that can help you. And it's kind of like Caitlin, my assistant. And then the last one is uh, Elena, who is our uh, COO in the business at Think Productive and it sort of says something like uh, and for anything else ask Elena she knows everything literally everything <laughs> and so you know I mean the permission for that is that she gets to do the same to me when she's away oh, right? right she had uh, maternity leave a little while ago so she had a nine-month block of like email Graham where you were the bottom well, name on the list <laughs> yeah uh, but I think just in 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 the same way as having to make that decision in your own mind if I'm going to write the capital letters slow and like declare that this is this really important thing you kind of have to really think twice and three times before you're going to do that and I think it's the same with 
if, I, if you're going to pick up the phone to another another member of my team and say this cannot wait until Graham gets back, then it's almost like it sort of creates that same. And I think barrier, that so right? many, so often in the workplace, especially people just the, the knee jerk assumption is that everything we do is urgent. Mm. Everything needs to be dealt with yeah. by the other side now. Yeah. And but all it takes often is just that one breaker in the circuit to get somebody to pause and think. Is this really urgent? Do I need to send the email again? Do I need to yeah. ring the other people on that list? And and as my last holiday showed, often more often than not, the answer is is no. I think it's good to keep a sense of humor about it as well. I came across somebody recently who has a, a lovely way of dealing with this. He has an automatic reply that goes out saying, you know, I, I'm away for a week. If this is really urgent, then please send the email to this other address where I which I will be checking. And the address he puts is ruin my vacation at gmail.com. <laughs> That's good. That is precious. Because like we do have to have time. I, mean, I think it's very important to have, um, you know, times where we unplug. And I also think it's, you know, certainly in my work, I see this all the time where the idea of taking an hour in your week to do quality thinking is seen as a luxury. And it's mm. it becomes a really... Uh, difficult thing for lots of people you know you put it in your diary and say this is going to be my planning time and my thinking time that's going to be the time where I'm going to regain my sanity and start to you know really sort of get to grips with what's on my plate and then someone else comes along and books another meeting over it and says oh it's only planning it's not yeah. too important we've got a client that obviously takes preference or whatever and it's just kind of not given that that sort of sense of kudos and importance but you know I do think it's one of it's one of the most fundamental things in business for me is you know, uh, really allowing people to prioritize quality thinking and the amount of efficiency and the amount of, uh, you know, just doing things better that comes from oh, taking yeah. that step back and the, you know, doing that thinking. The, I could not agree more. And the, the, the metaphor that I think is really useful for that is, you know, those little square uh, plastic games that have little squares that you move around till you create a picture. Oh, there's, yeah, all, there's yeah. always one blank square. Yeah, yeah. I think of the blank yeah. square as that thinking space you know, it seems empty, it seems pointless, it seems void, but it's the one that allows everything else to move mm -hmm. around yeah. and create the, the image that you're and trying give, to... Give you that flexibility. Yeah. But it's almost like, you know, people don't have that level of guilt around some quite meaningless stuff. You know, people don't have that level of guilt about, you know, going to a meeting where they really have nothing to contribute and spending an hour on that. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or, you know, there's just so many things. Yeah. Or spending another hour on email and you know, feeling bad about it. No one feels guilty about those things, but yet people seem to feel guilty about taking an hour out and really focusing on thinking and strategy and like that overview perspective of what you're doing. Which is, yeah, which is what we're both <laughs> fighting against. I mean, yeah, to show that that is actually the yeah. most, I would say probably the most important time, you know, or certainly among the most important moments is that take. And, and of course the big titans of the business world and history have always known that. I mean, yeah. I mean, What's uh, Bill Gates? You know, he used to have his think weeks when he was running um, Microsoft. He, t I he, he used to, he's, yeah, he used to take two weeks every year, just disappear to a cabin in the woods, and unplug and just think, mm. right? just ruminate, read, let his mind wander, slip into that richer, more nuanced mode of thought psychologists call slow thinking, <laughs> mm. and then come back. You know, and and or Jack Welch, you know, when he was running, you know, he used to shut his office door and. He'd call it looking out the window time. He'd take an hour and just gaze out the window. Uh, mm. I mean, the, I think most very successful business people, they may do it in a clandestine way for the very reason that you just outlined, which is that it's seen as a shameful thing, seen as a waste of time, mm. but they know that it's not. Yeah. So they maybe hide away and take those quiet moments when no one's looking. But that's silly. I, I think we should we need to smash that culture into a million pieces so that people don't have to do it as a guilty secret, yeah. but actually come out yeah. and say, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm shutting down my email, I'm closing my door, and I'm just going to be in here thinking for 30 minutes or 20 minutes, and that that would be something that people would applaud and admire rather than scorn. Yeah, and it's kind of heartbreaking that I didn't know that about Bill Gates. And then you think, what an example that would set and what thought leadership that would be for him to make that case and then you know you know by the same token um i got really annoyed about sort of uh three four years ago after steve jobs died and there was that period where everyone was writing books mm. about steve jobs and it became like because steve jobs would occasionally have like a massive hissy fit and throw things around the room and like really berate his team and be really angry and uh you know upset people in the office that that became because Steve Jobs did it, you should do it too, and that's a leadership style. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it sort of it does show you that I think you know there's people are looking for some of those sort of role model things, and I think you know if if you're in a 
a role where uh, you know you you understand the value of thinking. Like I think it's your duty to try and push that onto the rest to of the team. Proselytize, say like Definitely. this is something that you guys should think about as well. And you know, and, and like it kind of needs a bit of leadership. These things, doesn't it? Doesn't it to sort of to make it happen? It does. I think we need. I mean, especially in this celebrity-driven culture now, we've seemed to mm. unable to do anything unless somebody who's in the press, the media, is doing it first somehow. Yeah. So yeah, we need people, the trailblazers, the, the the quiet, slow thinkers, to come out and fly the flag for it. Right? Mm. Um, in your book, there's quite a few examples of either people who embody that idea of slow thinking or organizations that do, mm-hmm. and organizations that. Uh, you know, you've got examples of organizations that when they look for the quick fixes, things go wrong. And mm. when they're much more uh, focused on solving problems at a, a deeper level, things go well. Um, so tell me about um, Toyota and uh, what's pulling the Andon rope. Mm. Just talk about that. Well, actually, we talked earlier about titles of books. I wanted to call my book The Andon Rope. Oh, right. Okay. But the, the publishers decided that was just too obscure and too many leaps for the reader to make. And, and I'll explain now why. At the Toyota factories, famously, they have a a cord or a rope called the Andon rope hanging from the ceiling. And if anything goes wrong on the assembly line, even the lowliest worker, if it's a serious problem, rather than just patching it up and pushing it through, the lowliest worker has the right to pull the Andon rope and stop the whole assembly line. And at that point, colleagues, bosses, people up the, the chain come along and they gather around the problem and then they just become an annoying toddler and that they ask over and over again, you know, why, 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 mm. till they get to the root cause of the problem, they fix it, and then they let the assembly line carry on again, which is to me a, 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 a lovely metaphor for the, uh, for the slow fix. It's, yeah. it's pausing, it's taking time to get to the root cause of a problem, to come up with the right solution and then move forward, which can seem at a glance like a waste of time, but it's actually a very clever investment of time. You slow down now in order to save time and do things better later. Because imagine if you don't have an and on rope, what happens? Or you don't pull it. Well, those little problems sneak through and later on you have mayhem. And that's what happened to Toyota when they found themselves absorbing this idea of faster is better. They moved away from the and on rope culture and began to let fires burn out without asking why the fires were coming up and, and catching in the first place. And then we all remember what the outcome of that was, the, those terrible recalls they had several years ago. I can't remember the figures, but I mean, billions of dollars yeah. lost. Like 10 uh, million cars or something. Oh, millions yeah. of cars. Uh, and, the, and the CEO of Tokyo, uh, CEO of Toyota had to go before, I think, the U.S. Senate and more or less bow and scrape. But it was, mm-hmm. it was just a complete disaster. And really, the, the, the real cause of that was that Toyota got too fast. They stopped pulling the Andon yeah. rope. And you talked about in your book, uh, interesting one um, for me was BP, in that they had an environmental environmental disaster. Uh, I remember when you said the first one was in the 60s or early 70s or something. Mm. And then they solved that one. And then slowly that culture that they'd fixed and started to really focus on problems again, uh, withered away and people got back to the quick fixes. And then, of course, what happened a few years With ago. With deep water. So it's like yeah. history repeating itself. So yeah. that was kind of interesting to me that like, even if you feel like you've got a good, you know, very positive problem-solving culture, you have to maintain that and you have to really yeah. keep it going. Otherwise, it becomes the quick-fix culture. And, and exactly. Yeah, I know. And that's exactly, I think, the, the, the final chapter of the book looks a little bit at that idea that, that in some ways, really difficult problems, really complex problems are, are maybe never solved. I mean, you're always having to keep solving them, aren't you? Yeah. Specific problems themselves, like, for instance... I mean, poverty, will we ever, what would it even mean to solve poverty or climate change? I mean, these things are going to be with us in one form or another uh, for a very long time. And so we've got to keep feeding the culture, tweaking it, adapting it so that you don't start off thinking and get smug and complacent about feeling, oh, we're a slow fix and on rope culture. When clearly, even like BP or Toyota, who excelled at that approach to problem solving, it can just drift away and you can lose your way as staff change or through inertia or just because you need to keep at it, I think, because we live in a world where the pressures, the wallpaper of the culture is saying faster, faster, speed up. And so if you take your foot off the, the push pedal, right, it, you can slide. Yeah. And it's, it's a very, I think that's a, a very useful lesson for companies is to, to think, okay, we, even if you've got it to a really sweet point and you think we are really smashing the slow fix here, it's, it's, it's not game over, right? It's just, yeah. it's the first chapter. And I guess the other part of that is that, you know, I mean, I work with a lot of companies where you read what's on their, you know, on their website as their mission statement or their values. 
and then you go in and you work with them day to day and you get companies where you feel like those two things are really aligned and you also get companies that you know they're talking about communication or they're talking about quality or whatever and mm. then you go in and you're just like you guys are not living this this yeah. is to- <laughs> feels totally in. and I suppose the um, you know the thing that's important to to keep that culture aligned with those values and make sure that people are sort of focusing on it in that way is leadership right and like having mm. people that really focus on that and keep reminding everybody of that um, I was really interested in the book about um, talk about Bill Clinton and he talks about a couple of things that since he was no longer president he's tried to do every day and it was that every day he has to uh, use the phrase I was wrong and every day he has to use the phrase I didn't know that mm. and what I was interested with around that is uh, firstly I just think what an amazing uh, thing to set yourself as a sort of way of having that spirit of constant learning and, and problem solving and so on um, but also the sadness of the fact that he couldn't really have done that while he was president <laughs> yeah <laughs> so why, why yeah it was, why it's, it's, it's bittersweet isn't it uh, well it's certainly wonderful he's doing it now and I think it's something we should all seek to do always I mean I, there's something about that, this, that power of language is saying things out loud uh, using phrases that rotate the world and force you to look at it from an uncomfortable and different angle. Mm. And there seems to be something about just saying, I was wrong, I didn't know that, that can shift you out of the normal groove that we find ourselves in, which is just doing what we always do and, and believing what we always believe. Yeah. And that ends up delivering the same solutions we've always had, many of which we know don't work. It's so it's a, very human as well, isn't it? Like just that, the humility completely. of that and the, it's, it's so, um, it just feels so kind of, counterintuitive to see someone like Bill Clinton with all the especially sort of, someone like Bill Clinton uh, of course power yeah. oratory that he has say I, I didn't know that yeah. <laughs> he's been running the world and he still doesn't know that it's a bit it was a bit like that old story of the you know what was it the Roman generals used to when they were riding in from battle having won they would have somebody would stand a slave would stand on the at their ear and say remember that you were you were just you were mortal you were just mm. a man right the memento yeah. mori yeah. um, so it guys says that kind of idea of because it's so easy to get puffed up and that's another thing, of course, I look at in the book is our inability to admit mistakes and so yeah. on. And it, that's part of it as well, that we struggle with humility, right, as, 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 as human beings, I think, generally. But coming back to the first part of your question uh, and Bill Clinton, Clinton in office struggling to do that, of course, that, that is tragic, isn't it? And it says a lot about where we are in business, but I think maybe even especially in politics. It seems to me, when I first started out on this whole crusade to slow the world down, my gut reaction was that business would be the hardest not to crack. But 10 years on, I'm actually thinking it's politics. <laughs> that it's right. politicians yeah. who are more wedded to quick fixes, to short horizons, to kneeling before the next press conference, uh, ruling by tweet. I mean, th- they just seem to be more wedded <laughs> to that idea that it's gotta be now and, and I, yeah. can't, I can't admit to be wrong. Uh, whereas I think there's become even in the last few years more of a culture of business people gradually coming out and saying sorry or we got this wrong and 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 in their not just individual business people but also companies apologizing through the whole social media thing so there's a that shift is going on but uh, you don't see it much in the political sphere mm. and you definitely see a lot yeah. of quick fix the quick fix carousel spinning around have you done much work with governments of different countries and no stuff, see that's so. the thing no i mean i've been i've of course i've done been invited to give talks at government sponsored conferences especially mm. with education and so on but actually the workings of government not much and i think that's probably revealing that yeah that's quite interesting yeah, isn't it? yeah. it's it's more businesses that are open to the idea of, that slow might be good for them and help the bottom line governments maybe governments are just more stick in the mud i mean they just maybe take yeah. longer to get around to it. but i think i actually think it's because just the nature of that world it seems to be hardwired for for short-termism yeah what's making me smile uh quite a lot at the moment is in the midst of uh the post-brexit thing you've just got like this real it's so funny isn't it how there's like there's this massive and complicated thing that they now need to do but then you've got all these people going you need to activate the article 50 thing tomorrow (laughs) and it's like do you guys not know like how complicated that is? And it's like, I just think that tension is going to really escalate and grow and grow, isn't it? And, and they probably need you now more than ever. <laughs> yeah. In, do, I right? think, yeah. Just in terms of, um, you know, trying to unravel all of that complexity, but also still 
you know, keep all those people on side who voted for Brexit and mm. want Brexit. Fend off the now. pressure to, and, you know, yeah, exactly. Also, I guess you've got to try and uh, reunite that with the people who didn't want Brexit, but actually want it to, to be done sensibly or yeah. you know, still want certain provisions. I mean, in yeah, some ways, really I think, if, yeah, I, th- I think of Brexit as a, as a kind of quick fix, that approach, uh, <clears throat> a referendum yeah. seems to me, obviously it's a blunt instrument, but in some ways it's a bit like a quick fix because it mm. fails to take stock of nuance and shades of gray, black and white. It was just a simple binary, yes, no, on, off yeah. to an immensely complex question. Well, actually, to, someone said the other day, we were sort of voting on about seven different things, but no one knew which one anyone else yeah. was voting on. I mean, on, seven so. is a modest number. I, I, I mean, yeah. you could be voting. I mean, there just hundreds of things were yeah. in play in yeah. that vote. And we had one little moment of ticking. I mean, it just seems extraordinary mm. and, and, and in retrospect, perverse to me uh, that it happened that way. Yeah, completely. So I think they, <laughs> they probably need you more than ever right now to, to sort of uh, think about that. Um, be interesting to just talk about how you um, deal with this just in your own uh, life and work as well. So, like, what, how do you uh, equate um, slow with productivity? There must be some kind of nice uh, both contradictions and harmonies mm. around thinking about productivity and slow. Well, I'll, I'll let me cite a higher authority here, uh, which is The Economist magazine. At, at the end of 2015, they did a big... Uh, survey looking into the pace of life, especially in the business world. And they came to a conclusion, which for me is a perfect summation of where of the slow philosophy and of where I stand vis-a-vis productivity and so on. Mm. And, and their final two lines were, forget frantic acceleration, mastering the clock of business means knowing when to be fast mm. and when to be slow, right? Yeah. And there it is. That's The Economist. It's not Buddhist Monthly. It's not Acupuncture <laughs> Weekly. <laughs> it is the in-house Bible of yeah. productivity ninjas and and seekers the world over (laughs) and i think in a sense that that really sums it up for me that i i in my own life have learned i I used to have one speed right work play everything i had one speed and it was turbo and it just it just doesn't work it's it's simply inimical to living well but it's also inimical to working well so i find a big part of what i do when i talk about slow with the workplace for me personally and even other people but we're talking about me now is change gears right so we talked already about switching on and off the gadgets. Yeah. But I used to be the kind of person who would just sit at my computer and power through something, even when I wasn't getting anywhere. Now I'll get up, I'll go for a walk, I'll, I'll go have a chat with somebody. You know, I'll just have those... Ch- and then also I practice a bit of meditation, I do yoga, so I might go do some stretching, I might just go sit quietly somewhere for 10 minutes, five minutes, mm-hmm. and do some breathing exercises. All things that before my slow revolution would have seemed to me absurd, a complete waste of time. But now I realize that they're a very sensible investment of time and use of time. So that kind of changing of speed, changing of the on and off vis-a-vis technology is a big part of what I think productivity is and needs to be in a world that's based on a knowledge economy, right? I completely agree. Um, Did you, as you started to do that more and more, did you notice any sort of emotional pulls or emotional resistance against that? So, you know, that idea of uh, taking 10 minutes out to meditate or to stretch in the middle of the day like it do, you know when you first start to do that it does feel like I'm on a deadline why would I yeah. do that and you know that I hated logically it. it's the most important thing that you can be doing but actually in those moments when you're you know the adrenaline's going and the heart's beating yeah. emotionally it's a very difficult thing to do so when you came across that how, how do you how do you did you how did you get over that and what were the things that you uh you know, I, the sort of stories you told yourself to do that. Yeah, well, I suppose I did two things. One was I would have, you know, I had all of these stories at my fingertips of people who were doing this and so on. So I would sometimes maybe write a piece of paper, write a name of somebody on a piece of paper who I, I had occasionally written Bill Gates's name down, you know, with his Think Weeks, or just, just a little visual cue to remind me that the people who've gone all the way to the top have known the value of slowness yeah. and known how to shift gears. So I... I I don't do it so much now, but I, when I was trying to get to grips with this disconnect between knowing logically that slowing down would be good for me and actually what my fight or flight body was telling me and all of the panic that kicks in, uh, I, in the early days I would use little stickets, I'd maybe have a, a name up, or I would simply just use breathing. I would just say, okay, 
my head's saying this, the rest of me saying that, I'm just going to, in this chair now, I'm going to take five really deep breaths. Mm. And that would often be enough just to allow yeah. me to kind of get over that hump. And I know that hump very well, especially as a journalist, which is all about deadlines, really tight, yeah. big deadlines. And that so, programs your mind to just, yeah. you know, keep going towards the finish line the whole time. And you, so. you're, you, it's, it's almost like a hardwiring. And to unpick that takes time, yeah. takes patience. I love that thing of just writing down someone's name like Bill Gates. It's mm -hmm. just a really nice way of having role models. The one I do quite a lot is, uh, so I work uh, most often from a uh, garden office at the bottom of my garden, mm -hmm. aka the shed, I call it. <laughs> but, uh, so I'll be like, you know, in the shed and working on something. And if I'm really feeling like, okay, I need that that sort of time out or time to breathe or whatever, I'll make sure I go and have a cup of tea, but it's me that puts the kettle on and it's kind of me that has to go. And so often I'll make tea for the other people at that moment because it's like, okay, now that's just going to give me the five minutes to check out. And, you know, while the, while the kettle's boiling, it gives you that time to you know, do the breathing yeah. or just take that perspective and think. Well, about I, that's what you're putting your finger on there is something I often talk about and try and put into practice, which is rituals, right? Mm, I mean, rituals yeah. by their very nature slow us down. I mean, you don't accelerate the tea ritual. It would just yeah, be yeah. preposterous, right? Or, you know, so, and I think the embedding rituals in your schedule can be a mm. useful break on that fight or flight panic mode. Yeah, and uh, I guess like yoga is another way of thinking about it. It's it, like yeah. in some ways you could think about it as a ritual, right? Like it, you do certain movements and you have a certain order yeah. to that and a rhythm to that. And, and it almost becomes, ritual, yeah. you, you carve out those neural pathways, you get used to it. Mm. And it's just, again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier on that you to slow down is a process. It takes time. You know, you, you've, it's almost like a practice. You've got to work it yeah. in. And you, it's a bit like being an alcoholic. You know, a recovering alcoholic is like a recovering speedaholic. You could always fall off the wagon, right? You need to be, you need to be aware, alert, yeah. and, and, and keep making an effort, right? Mm. And, and that ritual thing, I was just thinking, actually, I was just thinking it today, that when I was struggling to come away from my desk and just take a few minutes or a couple of minutes to walk around, I used to see uh, people smoking because of course smokers have to leave their desk now yeah. and go and be outside and I, I remember thinking and this is how crazy I'd got at one point I remember thinking maybe I should take up smoking because <laughs> that would give yeah. me a reason to you know uh, I'd be forced to go away I've, thankfully I did not take up smoking but I think of sometimes think of it in the back of my mind as my smoking break I just go for a little walk out, out of the office I'm in now it's not a very beautiful or lubricous corner of London uh, but, you know, I have a little walk around, I come back and it um, yeah. you know, makes a big difference. So I'm a, a reformed smoker, my, uh, uh, the rituals of reformed alcoholics. I'm a reformed smoker and when I used to smoke, uh, I always remember, you know, you'd, so, so I used to work in this bank and then I would go out for the, the fag break and then you're smoking and you sort of judge time by how long of the cigarette is still going to burn <laughs> down before you're going to go back in. And so it sort of forces you to spend that five or six or seven minutes or however long it takes. Uh, to get to the end of the cigarette because you don't mm. just throw away half a cigarette when, when they're so expensive yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> and I was a lot younger didn't have any money so it's like you um, you know you like it, it really kind of forces you to have that length of time out and really sort yeah. of think about it and sort of since I've given up smoking I've had this whole thing of like I don't want the smoking I don't want the tar in my lungs but like I do quite want that sort of forcing me to okay three more minutes two more minutes I'll tell you what yeah. one way to do that is I had I had one of these for a little while and I, I broke but a, a sand clock you know a glass yeah right, an hourglass yeah. oh, but don't not for an hour obviously yeah. but if you, you can get them at different you can get them online at different minutes mm. and stuff and just and just have it by your desk and maybe you want three minutes or four and you just walk out yeah. with a little thing like but that. ideally what you'd want is something that sort of um, locks you out of your PC for those yes minutes. no of course yeah <laughs> so that you can't cheat it yeah <laughs> willpower I think is often overrated yeah. Uh, so speaking of which, are there things that you are still struggling with or things that uh, you, this is your chance to sort of bear all? Bear all, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there are, the, the, thing, the thing I still find the hardest to slow down at, and I have got a lot better at this, is, is driving. Mm. I, 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 um, I remember when I was writing in Praise of Slow, researching it, I actually got a speeding ticket, which uh, en route to a slow food dinner, which was pretty... <laughs> pretty Pretty embarrassing at the time, uh, but I I haven't had a speeding ticket since then. Yeah. But I do feel that itch to go too fast, and I and although I haven't had a ticket, I can I cannot sit here and say that I haven't been guilty mm. of speeding. Yeah. I I don't know what it is. There's something about driving that I find harder to. I don't know. There's that adrenaline kick, or just I don't know. I just find it harder. So I I'm, I'm still even now working on that. Yeah. Uh, I'm much 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 better than I was. I used mm. to be a really 
pretty recklessly fast driver. <clears throat> I'm not that anymore, but I still do sometimes go a bit fast and I can feel the urge to go too quickly. I also occasionally still struggle with that idea of saying no uh, mm. to stuff. Uh, that, that was one of the things I used to be a kind of total yes man. I just would do everything, everything's social, all work assignments. A big part of slowing down is, of course, is saying no and prioritizing and talk about in praise of slow. I, the flip side of that is in praise of no, I always feel. Mm. And in fact, you hear that from the business world as well as a quote. And I used to have his name up at one point on a poster sticker when I was grappling with how to say no is that, that um, Warren Buffett once said that the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Mm, yeah. And I thought, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I need to channel some of that. And so I've got a lot better at saying no. I say no to loads of stuff now, but there's still times when I get that slight little itch of FOMO and I think, oh, no. yeah. oh, am I missing out or should I? Or uh, So those are those are two things. And then, then my wife tells me I still walk too fast. <laughs> <laughs> but there may be other things going on yeah. there in that criticism. Well, you have long legs as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, just come back to saying no, what have you found has helped you with that? Like what are, the, what are your little tips or devices to help you to say no? Well, more? one thing that I do is that I, I keep a note and a record of things I've said no to. Oh, and then okay. I go back later on and look at them. Yeah. Like my little no file. And it's amazing how at the time something can seem unmissable and that the world will come crashing down yeah. if you say no. And then six months later, you think, well, was, I totally forgotten about that. It wasn't that important. And are you keeping that record to sort of keep score of how many, of like quantifying how many things you've said no to? Or is it more about like making sure that you made the right calls? So it's both. Can... It's both actually. Yeah. Partly it's a psychological buffer or, 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 or Philip it keeps me in that no space and, and yeah. keeps me strong in saying no but it's also a, a way of arranging you know who says what to me and and often you know what I find is that people think or fear that if you say no in the modern workplace that door closes forever mm -hmm. but what I found is that the opposite is very often true that you say no now and you explain why you say no you don't just slam the door in someone's face yeah. and shout no you say I can't do this now because I can't give you the best of myself in this moment. If I do, I will be too, I'll be overstretched, mm. but I'd be interested to hear from you later or maybe, and very often people will come back and say, yeah. I know you were too busy six months ago, but we've got something new and sometimes it's something even better and, and it fits mm. and then it goes from there. So. Do you end up sometimes with that though, saying yes, because you feel guilty that you said no. Oh, the second time before. around. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Or is that I've a new never thing? Are you about to find out? <laughs> yeah, that hasn't happened yet. I've never said no twice to anyone. I, yeah. But I don't think... That's a good... I don't, think, I don't think I've ever felt that I was saying a yes the second time because I felt guilty. I think it was just because it, the dates happened to work. And I, mm. That's a good point. I don't think I've ever been in a, in a double no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to come... I, that's just not happened. Maybe because of calendar yeah. dates and stuff that I haven't confronted. But it must yet. be a filter, though, <laughs> you know, in the sense of to go back to somebody who's already said no to you like it does mean you're serious about the thing you're asking them to do second time round right like most people wouldn't come back to you the second time yeah so. true yeah that it, it that filters out the the, the half-hearted mm. definitely you and you're going to feel that the person that really wants you i suppose yeah i had a little uh, <clears throat> sort of fun fun experience with saying no recently is uh, i got this email asking me to do something and i didn't really have the time to do it. And so I started getting halfway through crafting the reply about all the reasons why I couldn't do this with it. And then I realized, oh, I don't have to justify myself to them at all. Yeah. So <laughs> what I'll do is I'll be really nice, but I will just say that I've decided this is this is not a goer for me. And yeah. so I, and it felt like that when I first started writing in that way, like really sort of naughty and and then it sort of felt quite exciting. And I after I'd sent it, it just felt like <laughs> Oh, cool! I get to make this decision. I don't have to justify it. I don't, All this you know, baggage. They don't own me. Like yeah. wow, like that's cool. So that was just a really nice little. Uh, that's funny. Little, well, I think that's true. I think you people do feel that it's transgressive to say no. Mm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also you can get. Um, I often, when someone says no to me, but they say it really kind of gracefully or mm. with a real good heart, actually you respect them more sometimes when that happens then when they say yes I think so like it just there's something really nice about yeah about uh, an elegant no yeah an elegant no yes yeah. in praise of the elegant no <laughs> yeah cool um, so tell me about um, like what is uh, like what you feel like you still want to tick off like what's next for you like wh where do you see this work going in the next few years 
Um, I guess I see. I've got an idea for a new book, which is a slight departure, but I'm keeping that under wraps for the moment. Fair so enough. I'll, I'll talk, <laughs> talk about a couple of other things that I'm, I'm thinking where to go with it. Uh, one is that I would like to do more workshop long-term projects with companies. Mm. So I'm at the moment in talks with various people who, who do that kind of thing, who would like to pair up and, and work together. Because I feel like a lot of the stuff I do is is in and out. You know, it's it's often a surgical strike. You know, I come right. in, I give the talk. So you'll do or a if, keynote, or you'll do as yeah. part of an event or whatever, and then it's like, okay, so I really hope you're going to follow up. Yeah. But like, then, I'm on to yeah. the next thing. I'm on to the next thing. I mean, I do hear back from people, and I hear that things have landed and yeah. changes have happened. But it's never the same thing. I mean, we both. I mean, from mm. your work, you know, it's what you do. You change in culture doesn't happen with a however wonderful and amusing the keynote is, right? It's just not going to be enough. So I, I would like to roll up my sleeves and get down in the trenches a bit more that in that uh, longer term cool. kind of workshoppy way. So I'm casting around for people to do that with at the moment. And the second thing I would like to do more of is I'm, I'm been, I've sort of moved into TV a little bit. So I did a mm. TV show in Australia called Frantic Family Rescue, which is a bit, uh, do you remember Super Nanny? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I'm I'm slow nanny. So I get these <laughs> right. I get these high octane, very busy families for a month, and I've got to slow them down. Sure. Uh, and it was it was it was a lot of fun, and it it, it made a big differences to people. And I just I, I'm now working on a series for for a Canadian TV network, and so I quite interested in finding that because I do having been a writer, mm. that's quite a solitary. It's words. I mean, obviously, I do speaking and media and stuff, but I just feel like I'd like to do a little bit more on the sort of TV end where I'm got more control over how it's run and. How the message comes out, so I'm, I'm interested in in pursuing that. So I guess those are my three things: the new book, secret for now, yeah. uh, the working together with people in longer term stuff, and the, and maybe a bit more TV. I think. Cool. And in terms of your own uh, work life balance and how you judge happiness and success. Um, so firstly, do you feel happy right now? Yes. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. Yeah. I always. Yeah, I think I'm probably a naturally fairly happy person anyway, but I, I feel like I've got a good balance of things. You know, I, the, the work I do is important to me. It's important to other people. I don't feel overwhelmed by it. Uh, my family are well. I've got lots of time for, for stuff that's not work. I, I'm healthy. I love sports. I do lots of sports. You know, I, I, just, I live in London. I think it's a wonderful city. I, yeah. I'm able now, my children are a bit older, to make even more of it than I could in recent years. So, yeah, it's... Um, I think yeah, yeah, I am happy. Cool. Um, and what uh, what scares you? Like, what's your biggest fear, apart from speeding tickets? <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely the top three. My biggest fear is probably a personal one, and that is that I would no longer be able to play. I play hockey, ball hockey, mm. ice hockey, and so on. That somehow some physical thing would happen that I wouldn't be able right. to play that anymore because yeah. that's so so important to me. Is that trivial? The... I don't know, but I'm also worried, I guess, from a work point of view, if, yeah. if we're thinking in those terms, I guess, that I worried that somehow I would, the words would dry up and I wouldn't have anything more to say or add mm. to the conversation. Uh, although, I don't know, maybe is that that, that big a fear? I, I've said a lot. The words are out there. You know, I've, yeah. maybe I've yeah. said enough. Maybe I can go People off and do something. Yeah, yeah, they're still they're still hearing the words in different <laughs> forms. So maybe I, maybe, you know, maybe that's not such a big fear. Yeah. Interesting. Tell me about the the hockey thing. Like, why? What what would losing that mean to you? Oh, I just. I mean, I grew, as a Canadian, I grew up playing it. It was something I just played every day. I, it's what it connects. It's. I mean, it's a great workout, but it's it connects me to my Canadian childhood and mm. roots. I feel that you know I'm in my forties now. Every time I step on to the ice or the you know with the feel the ball on my stick, it's I, I'm 16 years old again, and there's something yeah. just joyous and transcendent about that. Um, it's social life you know my friends I play with um, yeah it's just it's just a big part of I feel who who I am somehow and not to have that would be would I don't know it would be I just oh I feel I feel myself shuddering just thinking about it <laughs> but I guess I don't know obviously from other points of view I guess if something terrible happened to my children or my family that would be that would be worse of course right yeah, but those are kind of givens I yeah. think cool um yeah, I mean, there's so much more I'd uh, love to talk about, but I think uh, that's probably a really nice uh, place to wrap things up, just in terms of, uh, I, like, I just love that image of uh, 
every time you step on the ice, you're back being 16 again. And that's, that's, that's just a kind of really magical thing, I think. Um, so I'll say, Carl Honoré, thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And uh, if, people can, uh, if people want to find out more about your work and your books and so on, just give us the, um, uh, the, you know, the web address and, and where they sure. can get more. Well, that, that's, that's easy and quick. <laughs> it's just my, my website, which is carlhonore.com. And everything is there, books, video, r- radio, my podcast, it's all. And, and lots of links to th- slow things of all kinds. It's, that's the clearinghouse. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks again to Carl for being on Beyond Busy. And that's it for another episode. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. Uh, as you'll probably know, if you... Uh, have listened to any of the last two or three episodes. Uh, I am currently on sabbatical, so I'm away from work right now. And uh, basically, you know, so I recorded all of these while I was still in work mode. So uh, by the time I put this out, it's like maybe Donald Trump's like press the nuclear button or something. I don't know. Because I'm recording this uh, uh, back at the uh, very start of uh, 2017. Uh, and basically spending the next six months, uh, January to Ju- July 2017, being out of work and the idea of of which is to explore uh, the whole uh, kind of concept of being beyond busy and what busyness means and like are we addicted to busy and all that kind of stuff so I am as I record this quite scared uh, about the next six months it kind of feels like it feels like a harder thing uh, than uh, anything I've done in my working career you know to just to do nothing like it's a thing I haven't done uh, for really since I was like I mean when I was 13 uh, I had uh, I had a paper round that was six nights a week. I was singing in a band, you know, for a lot of my teenage years. I was running a fanzine. I was uh, running a, a little kind of car washing business. There was all kinds of stuff that I was doing uh, all the way through school. And that kind of set the tone. You know, I've never really been out of work or not doing stuff. I've always been someone who is uh, quite comfortable with the idea of being busy. So this is a whole new challenge for me over this year. Wish me luck with it. And what that means is, uh, if you want to get hold of me, email is not a good uh, place to get hold of me. Uh, I will be on sort of Twitter, uh, you know, for some of the time, if not all of the time, uh, just at Graham Alcott on Twitter if you want to find me on there. Uh, And if you do want to uh, get in touch with me and with Think Productive, my business, uh, the business continues. So our Productivity Ninjas are uh, still running the workshops around the world. So if you're at all interested in helping your team or you personally to be more productive, uh, then check out thinkproductive.com. And there's a contact form on there where you can contact your relevant people uh, around the world. Uh, My book is Productivity Ninja, if you didn't know that already, which I'm sure you do. And I'm at grahamalcott.com if you want to find out more. Uh, So thanks for tuning in to this episode of Beyond Busy. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks' time uh, with another episode. And until then, take care. Bye for now. 